Joining us today for Superheroes of Science, we're pleased to welcome Jonathan Delp. Jonathan's an assistant professor in the Department of Earth, Atmospheric, and Planetary Sciences here at Purdue University. So thank you so much for joining us today. And I'm, I'm really excited about this because I think we're going to ask you about volcanoes. Right. Yeah, I mean, I'm excited to be here. Thanks for thanks for having me. Yeah, just uh, talk about a little research project that I recently got into with some some colleagues of mine trying to understand what the guts of volcanoes look like. And it's actually uh, it's something that we don't know a lot about. So it's a lot of fun to research. Yeah, when you say we don't know a lot about, I mean, volcanoes have been around forever. Don't we know them? You think so? Yeah, but it, it really seems like people in the geosciences, we tend to get pigeonholed sometimes in our specific discipline. And sometimes we get so into the weeds with our research that we, we forget to kind of zoom out and put it in a broader perspective so other geoscientists can, can take our results and incorporate them into their ideas about models of volcanic structure. It's awesome. That's a really good point. I, th I think that happens a lot in a lot of different areas. So definitely. Yeah, so I got in this project about three or four years ago, you know, some, sometimes people think research happens really quick, but in reality, it can take a really long time to, to really dig into an idea and, and come up with a, a nice synthesis of ideas or of perspectives um, anyway in understanding these systems. Uh, so I started this, let's see, yeah, I started it four years ago. Uh, and I worked with a couple other uh, geoscientists to really uh, look at the, the guts of these systems. And we zoomed into one area that's really active um, in the central Andes of South America. But before we get into that, I kind of want to go over uh, the broader context of, of what creates these um, magmatic systems on Earth. So we know that Earth's surface is composed of a lot of li little plates, and they move independently of each other. And what this means is there's areas where they diverge from each other and new oceanic crust is uh, created. Um, but this also means that there's places where they converge with each other. And this is largely where we have some of the biggest mountain belts on earth, uh, Western North America, the Andes, the Tibet Himalaya system. Um, so you can see the relative motions along these plate boundaries uh, with these little arrows. And we're gonna be focusing here on, on South American plate, but this is by no means a process that's isolated to South America. This is a global um, phenomena that we're trying to dig into. So we know at where, at the, where these plates converge, we build mountains and we often have volcanic arcs uh, associated with them as well. So these little areas where you see these little teeth uh, on, on, uh, on this map, you can think of them as kind of eating what's on the other side. So the Pacific plate looks, it goes uh, and subducts, it goes under the North American plate right here. So we have the Alaska Aleutian volcanic system. We have the Cascade volcanic system here. And of course the Andes, which is kind of the type example um, for subduction uh, globally. So if we look at this a little closer in cross section, we have this nice little conceptual cartoon of what this looks like. We have our oceanic lithosphere that subducts beneath our, our continental crust, which is what we live on. And where this happens, we get these linear features of volcanoes. And we think they're fed by basically water that's being taken down by the subduction process, released as pressure and temperature get too high for the water to be stable. This happens about 50 miles 
50 to, to uh, 80 miles deep, uh, water is released and it, it leads to volcanism uh, within the overriding plate. But really, you know, it's always good to zoom out and wonder why we, why we care about um, studying these systems. So of course, volcanic hazards are, are a big problem for society. Um, they can lead to things like climatic differences. We have these recorded in human history of a large scale um, droughts or famines initiated by large eruptions. Um, but if we go back even farther than documented human history, we can look at the geologic record and see that these can have global implications when they're particularly large eruptions. Volcanic arcs also provide us with a lot of the resources that we need to make things like computers and cars um, uh, in that they concentrate uh, really useful materials like copper um, uh, that we can end up mining uh, and using in our technology. So these purple dots up here are kind of the societal factors, but we also have these more what people might consider scientific uh, niche uh, studies. So looking at how they um, uh, affect, uh, or looking at how the, the guts of these systems uh, actually operate. How do we move this melt from deep into the earth's interior to the surface? And what processes does it undergo as it, um, as it migrates upward? So today uh, we really focus on these uh, uh, subjects outlined here. Uh, particularly how does magma propagate to the surface and what are the processes uh, that take place as it does this? And what does this mean for the creation of continental crust? So we think that volcanoes are really crucial for creating continents. Um, the continents, which are what we live on as humans, uh, are, are mainly formed at these subduction margins. About 80% of the uh, continents that we see today form this way. And this is 70% of the total crustal volume on Earth is created through these processes as well. 40% of Earth's uh, surface area. So this is really important for creating the environments that humans uh, actually can, can live on and really separates it from other planets in the solar system and that we're the only planet we know of that has these large scale uh, subduction zones and plate tectonic process. Even though we're focusing on what appear to be these kind of niche uh, scientific questions, they're really interconnected uh, with all of these different portions. So understanding something about how magma evolves and propagates through the crust is really useful for understanding um, uh, the risk for uh, eruption, for example, um, and the implications that might have for society. Usually I have more questions, but it's, yeah, this, this makes very much sense. I did think it was very cool. And the one thing that I had not uh, thought of mm -hmm. was that uh, in a, within a subduction zone, and it, we talk to students, we talk about convergent, divergent mm -hmm. uh, boundaries and stuff, but in that uh, subduction zone, in a convergent ba uh, boundary, uh, that you mentioned that the water from the oceans is going down there is what you think fueling yes. the actual volcanoes. Now that's a, a little tidbit that I had not heard. I hadn't either, but the, the cross-section, the cartoon cross-section that you showed I could definitely see how, how you could get there like that. And then when you said that, I thought, oh, that makes sense. Yeah, it's really interesting. So water, we kind of think is crucial to creating continental crust and might be a reason that the other terrestrial bodies in the solar system that we know of don't have the kind of crust that we have on earth. We, we commonly plot these things in, in, in our classes that show 
average elevation on, on Earth. And you see it's very bimodal. There's two distributions, the continents, which are around sea level, and the oceans, which are about four kilometers below sea level. And these are due to this kind of change in composition um, between oceanic crust and continental crust that it results from the subduction process itself. Oh, yeah, yeah, I do like that. It's, it, I'd never thought that maybe the water impacted mm-hmm. how the, the crust is being formed mm-hmm. the, with the different plates. Yeah, and that, I mean, it has a lot of other effects besides just magmatism that I, I also do a lot of research on, but uh, won't get into those um, today. Okay, so we have this nice conceptual cartoon of what a subduction zone looks like, but it is just a cartoon. And in reality, we don't really know the details uh, of how this um, water uh, proper, how this magma uh, propagates to the surface and how that varies between different magmatic systems. And in reality, when you ask a geoscientist, what, what does it actually look like below a volcanic edifice? It really depends on who you ask. So here's a couple conceptual models that I like to show that I think synthesize the way different geoscientific disciplines view magmatic structure. So here's the outermost layer of the earth, the crust and the uppermost mantle. This is the rigid part of the earth that we call uh, the lithosphere. And this is how we think, uh, or this is a a process focused, I would say, um, viewpoint of how we move material from um, melt down deep from the dehydration, dehydrating subducting plate uh, up to the surface. And you can see this kind of puts it in a couple uh, pretty discrete zones, one kind of near the base of the crust and one somewhere in the mid crust before erupting at the surface. And we can look at chemical differences in rocks that are either exposed at the surface that have been uh, from, that are from maybe the mid crust or lower crust or we can look at the magmatic products or the eruptive products that actually come out of volcanic edifices to try to back out um, uh, what's happening at depth in these systems. We can also go out into the field and actually look at the rocks um, where we can accrete them to continental margins or where we basically collide a volcanic arc with a pre-existing continent. We flip it on its side, it gets exposed and geologists can actually go out and and look at the rocks uh, as they were formed. And you can see this gives us a pretty different view of what the magmatic architecture in these areas looks like. It goes, uh, so these are to scale, this red box here corresponds to the red box on this figure. And what you see is it's it's a little layered. The lower portion is um, made of what we call ultramafic material. This is really dense material. Let's see, I have an example of it. Here's a a rock, here's what this might look like um, if you were to catch it out of the field. And then as we get to shallower depths, it gets into much um, more what we call silicic rocks, which are more akin to what you see in a a typical granite, um, granite countertop or something like that. So we have this depth dependent stratification of basically composition, but it more or less looks like it's continuous throughout the uh, lithospheric column. So rather than being in these discrete zones uh, within uh, the crust and upper mantle or the lithosphere. So is this what a 
a basic anywhere that we look at a continental crust, it, often generally this is what you'll find, this gradation of densities within the rock. So mostly, yes, most continental crust we think uh, is gradational in its composition. So basically as you go deeper, thing, the rocks themselves get heavier or denser. Um, but not all of them have this bottom portion. This bottom portion um, seems to be uh, pretty um, strongly related to magmatic systems themselves. And it's because these initial melts that come out of the mantle, they hit the bottom of the crust. They're actually too heavy to go through it. And they sit there for a long time and little crystals that are heavy crystallize out of that and leave the melt and leave you with something that's a lot lighter and can actually float up to shallower depths uh, in the crust. Usually for continental crust, we think that we can remove this lower portion because it's so dense given enough time. But at magmatic arcs, we might be, not in all arcs, but in some arcs, um, these things can hang around for, for a while uh, when they're attacked. While I was going, well, is that... Um because the way the volcano itself is forming and where we have that magma coming up or how much of that is also because of the depression, the weight of the crust mm -hmm. on top of it. And so are, do those work together or they is one process more dominant to result in the uh, densities of the different rock layers? Yeah, that's a great question. So. So I'll bring out a term here that, that I think really um, sums it up nicely. And it's a term we call viscosity. And it's basically the stickiness of a melt. So if you have a, a, a low viscosity melt, that's usually what we get initially melting in the mantle. And it's at really high temperature. It has a much easier time getting up through this uh, crustal layer. But as it evolves to more... Um, uh, silicic compositions, it gets stickier and is more likely to get stuck somewhere. So viscosity is one um, criteria, but density of the melt itself is another criteria. So in some of these melts, they can actually be denser than the solid shallower rocks that we see, and therefore they're not going to want to come to the surface because ultimately uh, what you can view the crust as a, as a density sorter. The light things come to the top, the heavy things sink to the bottom, as long as the viscosities and rheology of the lithosphere or the strength of the lithosphere, another word for rheology, will allow that material to move. I like that. Yeah. Oh, that's like very that. good. Yeah. So this is how a geologist generally sees these systems uh, when they're looking at these, um, the actual rocks in the field hiking out in the wilderness. And then we have the seismologist perspective, uh, which Seismology is a, basically a way to take um, images of the earth similar to what you do for a, a CAT scan. So we can use variations in how uh, seismic waves or waves generated from either earthquakes or, or some sort of explosion, some sort of uh, energy input into the earth, how that propagates and changes uh, as a function of space. And by doing that, we can, we can look at the interior um, uh, of the earth below these magmatic systems. Here's an example of what this looks like. This is uh, velocity at which a wave propagates through the earth. This is about 45 kilometers depth or about 25 miles deep. And this is actually below Mount St. Helens in the Pacific Northwest. And what we're showing is, is 
basically warm colors or reds are slow velocities, blue colors are fast velocities. And this basically highlights regions of either high temperature or possibly melt uh, in magmatic systems. So the subsurface plumbing in this area, it looks like there's a little pathway that you can infer based on where velocities are relatively slow. And we know that they have to come up to the surface at the volcano. So you can interpret some sort of magmatic pathway along which these melts move based on these seismic properties. Oh, cool. Wow. But this gives you pretty different views of what the guts of a volcano actually look like. So the main goal of this study was to try to integrate these systems together. And to do that, we needed expertise from all of these different fields. So I worked with a couple other uh, young scientists. Um, I'm a seismologist, so I focused on what the seismic images of these magmatic systems look like. Uh, I worked with Barbara Rashbacher, who's a uh, professor at University of California, Davis. She studies these systems in the field. Um, and Kei Shimizu, who works on the geochemistry of these systems. So he looks at how magmas evolve or change composition as they cool down on Earth. So by combining this expertise, we wanted to see if we could reconcile these very different uh, apparent viewpoints of the conceptual model for magmatic systems uh, into something that satisfies uh, all of the information that the individual disciplines can, can bring uh, to understanding this. So that makes sense. It makes sense that, you know, based on what you're studying, you know, the seismology focus, the petrology, the geochemistry, you're looking, maybe taking different measurements, you're getting different sets of data that you're looking. So it makes sense that how you're looking at that data is going to, is going to be consistent with what it is you're studying. And then, but if it's all looking at the same system or the same idea that you'd want to find those commonalities um, and make that, make that a stronger set of data. Right. So these different fields are sensitive to slightly different things. And in order to see how modern systems work, if we can find an area where all of these um, data sets uh, exist, uh, we can try to better link what a geochemical process might look like in seismic data and how that would um, and contextualize it uh, with the field view or the petrological view of these magmatic systems as well. And that sounds like a really important thing, especially if, if there's a lot we don't know that we can't just look and see what the base of a volcano might look like, but that using these clues helps build that stronger case for what is happening. Right, right. And having a more uh, integrated viewpoint of these systems or having the general field have a better knowledge of what the other fields uh, know about, I think will really help us to advance um, even our individual disciplines understanding uh, of these systems as well. And that's something in science we often don't think about. That mm -hmm. be different people studying things will get different data and mm -hmm. could perceive things. And absolutely, once we yeah. get information from other people who are studying different ways, mm -hmm. we have a whole other picture sometimes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we did actually find a location where we could bring in all of these different data sets together uh, to try to better uh, figure out what the system looks like. Um, uh, what different processes look like uh, in these different data sets. So for this, uh, we move down to the central Andes of South America. So I wanna contextualize this as being part of a very large 
orogenic system or mountain building system characterized by magmatism along the entire western margin of the Americas. So this entire gray area is something we call the American Cordillera. And it's a convergent margin um, that's filled with volcanoes or otherwise uh, uh, magmatic systems that are perhaps extinct now, but extend almost uh, across the entire Western hemisphere. So while we're just looking at a relatively small portion uh, of this larger uh, orogenic system, what we see here could actually be applicable to a lot of other portions of this system. So here's our study area. Here's a map of South America. We're looking at this little red uh, box here. And what we see in this area is it's um, a lot of volcanism um, of various uh, ages. I won't focus too much on it, uh, but all of these colored polygons are very large eruptions uh, that took place in the Andes. You can see that this is characterized by what we call a caldera center, which erupts these, these very large, what we call ignimbrite or dacite sheets, very explosive uh, eruptions that, that have the potential to have uh, at least um, annual or, or relatively short term on the order of years, uh, changes in, in global climate if they erupt. Uh, we also see the more typical, um, what we call arc volcanoes shown by these red triangles. Here, they're generally located uh, uh, linearly along um, uh, subduction zones, uh, parallel to the subduction zone uh, itself. And these are kind of your typical stratovolcanoes, things like Mount St. Helens um, uh, that we see in the Pacific Northwest. Uh, and what I show in these yellow polygons is our different seismic stations. So we use these stations to record earthquakes that are occurring all over the globe um, and analyze their data to tell us about what's underneath these different uh, magmatic centers. So the question we were after was what does this modern uh, day, what, what is the modern structure of this young and very active uh, magmatic system look like from both a, a seismic and a geochemical perspective. And I think I'm going to focus at first on my specialty, which is taking these CAT scans of the interior of the earth to see what it looks like below these volcanoes. So for this, we use a, a couple different types of earthquake waves. The first is a P wave. Uh, so if we have some earthquake uh, it emits a P wave that propagates to our seismic station. And the P wave is the fastest traveling wave through the earth. And when we analyze, when we zoom in to the area right below our seismic station, what we see is what happens at these, with these P waves is if they encounter a change in material properties, they will actually generate a converted phase or an S wave. So this is a different kind of uh, uh, phase that results from energy coming in at an oblique angle to the interface itself. And we can look at the difference in the travel time between the P wave in this layer and the S wave to back out the discontinuity structure of the earth. So our seismic data actually looks like this red line, whereas this black line represents a change in material properties. So you see a nice positive peak where you have a big change in material properties and this tells us about the layered structure uh, of the Earth uh, right below our seismic station. 
We can also uh, look at surface waves to tell us about velocity variations as a function of depth. So a surface wave is more or less what it sounds like. We have an earthquake. It emits a wave that propagates along the surface uh, to our seismic station. The particle motion or the way this, this is commonly what's felt when there is an earthquake, the big rolling that you, you might see in you know, iPhone videos um, from, from some earthquake uh, that occurred in California or Japan. So these are the type of videos that go viral is when people are feeling this type of wave. But what it tells us about is velocity as a function of depth uh, below our seismic station. So this is what a Rayleigh wave, um, the specific type of uh, surface wave might look like as we record it on our seismic station. But we can look at different frequencies or, or different wavelengths of these um, surface waves to tell us about how uh, the velocity changes um, as a function of depth within the Earth. So by combining these two data sets, we can do a really good job constraining our depths to interfaces as well as the velocity structure um, within our study area. So we can apply this to all the seismometers we had in this portion of the central Andes. I wanna focus on just one um, uh, cross section throughout our study area. In reality, we make a 3D volume of velocity uh, below this entire region. Uh, but I want to focus on particularly the most uh, active um, uh, caldera center um, in this portion of the study area. And it's highlighted here by Cerro Galan. It's erupted huge amounts of very explosive volcanism, as you can see in this yellow uh, pattern here. Um, this is in degrees here, uh, but the distribution of the signimbrite is about 100 kilometers wide and 100 kilometers in the north-south direction. So a huge eruption that took place. It's about, um, this one is about, a, a, it's pretty old. This is an age in millions of years. Should say this volcano hasn't erupted for about 2 million years. So we can take a cross section through the model that we created to look at the structure beneath the region. And we see a couple of things pop out. So here again, we're, sh taking, we're showing shear wave velocity Throughout the study area, we go down to about 80 kilometers or 50 miles uh, deep. Uh, and we see uh, some, some interesting features. I should point out that the moho is what we generally consider as the base of the crust. Uh, this is interpreted from a different data set that is not um, something that I derived. Uh, but it gives us a good idea on where we should expect to see this change from dominantly crustal material to the much denser material that we see at the base of these magmatic systems. So when we look at this model, what we see is really slow velocities compared to what we expect. Mm. Particularly under this Cerro Galan Caldera Center, we see these very red kind of um, oval shaped uh, structures. And if you look up at the top, I've put some proxies on here for what we generally expect to see for different types of material. Crust should be in this orange to green range and regions with melt are in this red range. Now there's a lot of things besides just melt that can cause velocities to be slow, but given the fact that we're in an extremely magmatically active area, this is the simplest explanation for what's causing these low velocities um, beneath these um, magmatic edifices. 
We also see really slow velocities at depth where we think they should be faster. Now, granted, these are green colors, but this is areas where we expect to see blue colors. So one thing that could slow down something from blue to green is again, a little bit of melt, but at greater depths. So we generally know that as we go deeper in the earth, seismic velocities increase. And seeing velocities this low at these depths mean that something uh, is, is off from what we typically see um, beneath continents on Earth. Hmm. That's great. And I just want to clarify a couple things. So that you said the Cerro Galan, that, that has not erupted for millions of years. About 2 million years. About but one thing that's really interesting about this is we generally don't think magmatic systems last that long. Um, but we can still see in the seismic data that of course is just a snapshot of today's structure in the area, that this area seems to still have melt below the caldera edifice. So this is an active area of research into how long we can actually keep a magmatic reservoir um, in a state where there's melt present um, for, for uh, how long. Okay, and then, and then the melt is, is that like the lava or the magma? Yeah, great question. So um, when we say magma reservoir here, we're not talking about a big pool of liquid. We're generally talking about something that we usually call a rigid sponge. So let's say it's, it's 80 to 90% crystals, so solid material. And there's about 10 to 20% actual liquid melt uh, present in the material. Mm -hmm. This has been a pretty big paradigm shift in how we view the structure of um, magma systems within about the last five years, moving away from this isolated magma body of, 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 of molten material, pure liquid, toward these very low melt percentage bodies that seem to house magma over really long durations of time, but in a state that isn't eruptible. Mm -hmm. So at these current measurements, it's hard to tell if a volcano like this that hasn't erupted in 2 million years uh, is still capable of erupting. It might be stable in, in this low melt percentage configuration and just eventually crystallize to give us something that looks like normal continental crust. So we can look at these low velocities areas and, and, and instantly in, or, and infer that there's some melt present here. Mm -hmm. But we can't do this from seismic velocities alone because a lot of factors influence seismic velocities besides just melt. It could just be that it's hot, but not hot enough to actually melt rock. So in order to try to understand whether melt is actually present at these depths, we need to look at a different data set. And for that, we bring in geochemistry. And we wanna figure out if these two images are actually consistent with each other. So what we're showing in these geochemical plots are volcanic samples that have erupted in our study area. And we actually have a really broad range of silica content, which is one of the ways we classify um, rocks uh, on earth, uh, which makes this one of the best places in the world for studying what the crustal scale structure um, an architecture of these magmatic sy systems looks like. So you can kind of look at this x-axis as a proxy for the last depth that um, that melt was prior to erupting. So the lower the silica content, the deeper that melt was sourced from immediately before eruption. So we can look at 
this from, from uh, left to right as a kind of a, a depth profile of the, the processes that are happening throughout the lithosphere. And what we see, I'm not gonna get into the weeds on what these, um, the specifics of these geochemical proxies, but we do see evidence that are consistent with the seismic data for melt being present throughout the entirety of this magmatic system. And this one I'm showing here, it uh, shows evidence for multiple generations of magma mixing throughout the crust. We can also look at some other ones that show evidence for the presence of deep melt. So as we mentioned in the last slide, these velocities at the base of the system, they're not that slow, but they're slower than what we generally expect to see at these depths on Earth. So this implies the presence of melt from the seismic data, but we clearly see in the geochemical data um, that these are undergoing very deep geochemical evolution. We also see that it's undergoing shallow evolution at some places, which is consistent with this big low velocity um, body that we saw beneath that big eruptive center, uh, indicating that yes, in fact, melt is uh, the reason that velocities are so slow in this region. And it doesn't have to be a lot of melt. You can do some very back of the envelope calculations or estimates for how much should be down there. And the maximum in any one place in this magmatic reservoir, we would call it, would be about 22%. So the bulk majority of what we call this magmatic reservoir um, is much lower than something like 10% melt. Mm -hmm. And we can see more evidence of, of, in fact, this system being so long-lived that it actually incorporates um, uh, a little bit of the pre-existing crust that existed um, uh, into the magma itself through remelting it. We call this a, a crustal assimilation, which we see in these geochemical signatures as well. So the geochemistry and the seismology, despite looking quite different from these conceptual models, are actually showing us very similar things if we know how to interpret them in the context of each other. And that's really the big takeaway of this study, is that despite looking very different from these individual disciplines, all of these conceptual models are actually pretty consistent with each other. It just took kind of a joint integration of expertise to really understand what each data set tells us and how they complement each other. One of the big challenges with this research from the very start is communi even communicating with other PhDs in geosciences, there's a lot of somewhat what you'd consider from your individual discipline, basic concepts that have to be communicated um, in order to have a more nuanced discussion about what these data sets mean. Standing outside, it, it, looking in, I'm like, oh, well, they're all geoscience. They're all gonna speak the same language and think the same thing. And yet when I talk to you like, oh yeah, we're, we have people from different fields that we're coming together. And, but then you know, on the outside, we're like, well, no, no, they're, not, they're like, geos they're geoscience people. They're, they're all in the same field. But uh, it's the each any field you think of is so huge, and there's so many sub things, little things in there that you can study and that you specialize in. Right. And it's I think it's it's really interesting how we we start individualizing for that group uh, terminology, uh, and so and understanding sometimes, mm -hmm. and so explaining things to each other even though we're in, the, in a larger thing in the same field, 
is uh, it's it's something that you just don't think about. Yeah, it's true. I think the the really juicy science questions, if I can use that term, really lie at the intersection of those subdisciplines. Being able to communicate with each other after you've been so specialized and and really have a deep knowledge about your subject. Sometimes zooming out is is a little difficult, but it's really where the fun the fun science is, in my opinion. Well, and I feel like it's probably really optimistic as well, just that you can get to the point where you say, okay, we have now all communicated. And yes, what we're showing is they are all consistent with it. I think it would be real, but also disappointing if you found that, okay, all of ours, we're all getting different things. We've got to go back to start with square one and figure out, I just think it's really, it's, it's probably an exciting feeling to think, oh, we're all sort of um, supporting what each other is, is studying. Yeah, we, but, but we really didn't know ahead of time if that was the case, right? So it, yeah. it, we had to have everyone's perspective and, and a little more knowledge of the, the nuance or the minutia that, that doesn't get communicated across disciplines in order to really understand that, no, we're, we're not talking about different things, even though it, at the surface, it, it sounds like we are sometimes. So how did you get connected with other professionals um, to study something like, I mean, like, did, did, how did that happen? Yeah, so this was a really exciting uh, workshop that was hosted by the National Science Foundation, uh, again, about four years ago, that, that was trying to tackle uh, some of the uh, really challenging questions in subduction zone science. So when I met these, um, my other, my colleagues, uh, we, we hadn't met each other before that. And they basically threw us in a room um, or threw up subjects of, you know, what are you interested in about uh, subduction zones? And we all went to the magma system room and found that, you know, holy cow, we, we've all been studying the exact same thing. We didn't know each other's research and we can like make some really interesting um, observations if we sit in a room for two weeks and just try to hash out a project. Um, so that was the inception, uh, which was really exciting. And then the three years or four years of science that followed um, was a, a, a huge challenge uh, to communicate um, effectively across such different disciplines. Um, that's really, I think, why it, why it took so long to happen. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think it's a big thing that to, to, yeah, where you say it's a huge challenge to communicate. Mm-hmm. It uh, it's 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 has to be a major a major event to figure it out, but then be able to explain it to your peers and their peers is has to be a, a challenge. <laughs> yeah, definitely. And and from someone that that focuses more on the the physics part of of geology, working with chemists. Um, was, uh, you know, had to go back and revisit some, some basic chemistry just to try to communicate with, with them on what they're seeing. So uh, I learned a ton. And I think, um, you know, the projects like this are just, they're just learning experiences for, for everyone involved and, and things that you would never try to tackle alone. Um, so collaborative science is, is where, the, where the fun's at, in my opinion. I love that. I do too. And it's so great to hear you say something like that, you know, just speaking and, um, you know, positively about, you know, collaborating, especially with other professionals outside of where you, and, and not being scared of 
um, you know, being open to the, you know, are, are, is my data gonna, gonna mesh with this? And are we gonna come up with these? I feel like that's a really, that's an, just an awesome thing. Uh, it, it, and I can see, I mean, I can yeah. see exactly, I mean, think of what, what we do oh, as being yeah. teachers yeah. and educators. It's uh, our best work comes from collaboration. Yes. I mean, Sarah's chemistry, I'm earth, atmospheric, planetary. And mm -hmm. it's like then Brooke with math, uh -huh. the three of us just got together and did this entire unit. Yeah. And it's, it, it's something none of us could have done. On our own, we couldn't, but together we can make something that, that you know. And so it, it's, <laughs> it, I realized the education side is a little bit di different than the research side, but yeah. it's, there's similarities mm -hmm. there working with these other people and collaborating. It took communication. I mean, I had to have her re-explain some chemistry that I haven't had in a long time. And, uh, and the math, the two Brooke, Yeah, I'm like, now, what are you guys talking yeah. about? Uh, several times I had to ask them to kind of explain some math concepts. I'm like, I don't remember hearing about this. Are you making this up? You know, <laughs> but it, uh, so yeah, it's it's definitely a awesome opportunity for us as individuals collaborating with others in other but it's something that we also fear because we become experts mm -hmm. in our small area. And so it's very intimidating now to collaborate with someone who you know is an expert where you're known. And so all of a sudden it's like, hey, we have that internally, I feel like an imposter, I, I feel dumb. I feel, I, I don't- <laughs> My weaknesses it. are exposed. <laughs> yeah, and so it's, it's yeah. overcoming that fear to be able to collaborate, I think yeah. is where, like you're saying it, that's where the exciting stuff is gonna be. Yeah. But it, yeah, you're right. It opens you up to, you know, possibly you were doing something wrong this whole time or something. It makes you a little vulnerable. And I mean, personally, uh, I would like to know if I'm wrong uh, <laughs> uh, and you learn a ton. But yeah, it can be it can be uh, jumping in the deep end sometime. And, uh, well, thank you so much for sharing all of that. I mean, I think this is so helpful just to hear to hear, especially to hear from you, who's the researcher in the field, you know, doing yeah. these things, collaborating with these people. And and this is what we don't hear. I know. That's what <laughs> I so appreciate about. We yeah. don't hear about people collaborating with others in, in the, both the fears. And it's, right. it, I think you guys were partly triumphant. I, I imagine there was some, uh, a little bit of celebration going on when you realized that, yes, well, you know, all of us are, our conclusions are supporting each other. And, yeah. Yeah, science is constantly evolving. Uh, so, you know, hopefully this stands the test of time. I, I think it will. I'm really excited about the research and I think it's been largely positively received, which is always encouraging. <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you very much for taking your time to, to share with us and uh, sit down with us and chat. Yeah, this was great. Thank you guys so much. I had a lot of fun. <laughs>